Jesus, your name is above all names. It's by your name that we might be saved. It is the only name by which we can be saved. And we, uh, we, we, we praise you today. We glorify you. We revel that uh, you would call us uh, sons and daughters and would give us life with you. Uh, Lord, as we uh, come now to your word, we want to hear from you and be encouraged by you as we talk about how you're there, uh, the, the tough circumstances of our lives. Would you uh, remind us to keep our eyes fixed on you uh, as we walk through this life, as we uh, give these gifts, we give them uh, so that uh, uh, your name can be made famous through us as a church here and around the world. Uh, everything we have comes from you. This is just a little bit back. Lord, use it for your glory. Get me out of the way as I speak today. Thanks for these uh, who are here this morning. I want to pray for every family and every uh, individual represented here. Uh, Lord, would you uh, move uh, yourself deeper into their lives? Would, would they be open to surrendering to you in a, in a more meaningful way this morning? Whether they've never met you or whether they've known you for a long time, God, would you bring us uh, to a point where our knees bow and our tongues confessed? Uh, you, are, you are Lord. We just thank you for that. We're grateful for this chance to worship you today. Uh, teach us now from your word, and I pray these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Turn and say hi to somebody. Welcome them here to Bay Life Church. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, or if you have something electronic and you want to scroll there, you do whatever you want. Uh, but that's where I'm going to be preaching today. Uh, let's talk about life, shall we? Are you living yours? Trying to live mine, here's what I've noticed. There's ups and downs. Good days, bad days. Um, we live in a world that after Genesis chapter 3, uh, the, the sin came into. And, and sin has made a mess of the life that we live in. So we don't live in constant victory. We, we have moments, probably to, uh, too many of us in here, too many moments, uh, we're reminded of sin's presence in our lives. Whether it's our own doing, someone else is doing against us, uh, we have rough days. Agreed? It can be something simple. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've said this to myself after starting into something that I thought would just take a little bit of time and be super easy. I, I, I said this to myself. I thought this would be way simpler than it was. Anybody been there? I went to uh, just, <laughs> this is so mundane and so silly. I'm not super handy. Have you noticed that from some of the preaching stories I've given you? But I found one thing that I can do, and I'm really proud of it because not everybody that I do this uh, you know, activity with can do what I do or, or does what I do. Uh, I, I can re-grip a golf club. This is the grip on a golf club. Uh, it's really simple, uh, but people pay, you know, other people lots of money to do it. I do it by myself. Thank you very much. Hold your applause. But anyway, uh, it's, it's so simple that you can do like two or three golf clubs in, in, in 10 minutes if, if you're set up to do it. And so this one particular night this past week, I decided I was going to regrip re a couple clubs uh, before I turned in for the evening. And uh, 10 minutes is about just about the right amount of time for me to do that in my hot garage in June and not get sweaty enough to have to take a shower. Are you with me? But did it work out that way? No. Why? I couldn't find any of the stuff that I reglip clubs with. I mean, I, I know I put it right where I put it, but uh, none of the stuff was there. I couldn't find the utility knife. I couldn't find the tape that I used to do all this stuff. And so what was meant to be 10 minutes turned into 40 minutes just trying to find my stuff, which I never found, actually. If anybody has it, that was a dirty joke, give it back. <laughs> but then I spent the next 10 minutes just making do with what I had, and I'm grateful to tell you that I uh, completely rigged it so that this stuff still works with things that weren't supposed to make it work, but uh, uh, I had to go back into the house now, cool off for an hour, and then take a shower before I could go to sleep. Anybody been there? Okay, maybe not. I've been there. And it's, it's just so many things in life, it's that way. You think it's going to be easy, and it's not. So many things in life, you think it's not going to cost a lot, and it does. Anybody been there? You start out with budget X, and it turns into budget 2X or 3X or 4X. Eleanor and I just uh, moved a couple years ago, went into a house that uh, had been basically uh, vacant. Homeless people had lived in it for about 10 years of its vacancy. Uh, it had to be completely uh, gutted to the, to the block. The only thing left was the roof and, 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 the, and the cement. Uh, but we thought it was going to be X. Like on HGTV, who watches these shows? They get done at the end, and it, well, after everything was all countered, it was only, you know, $12 for us to fix up this entire house. I don't believe those shows anymore at all, because I live in the real world. And what we thought was going to cost X cost, well, X, Y, Z, A, B, C. That's just the way it is. 
here's kind of where I'm going if you're not picking up what I'm putting down. Everything worth having in life costs something. Everything worth having in life costs something. In a world where, uh, where sin rules and, and, and sin limits, uh, we're, we're going to have to pay. Things are going to be hard. If it's worth having, it's, it's going to be costing us something. Good marriage, got to work at it. Uh, you want to move forward in life, got to work at it. You want to have the things that really matter, it's, it's going to cost you. Some of you are like, oh, no, no, Mark, our salvation, let me get theological with you, Pastor. Didn't cost us anything. By grace, we are saved through faith. It was free. Well, for us, it was. But for Jesus, it cost him his life. Yeah, but he came back from the grave. Yeah, but he had to take the sins of the world upon him as he died. Let's not minimize what Jesus went through. The cost for our salvation was the greatest ever paid. Yeah, if it's worth having, it costs something. We see that in the story of our nation. We're all going to get the fireworks out on Tuesday, right? Or at least try to sleep through them. Anybody else do that? I got these, you know, yahoo neighbors who are like, hey, 1130 is a great time to start shooting these off. If they're here. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but hey, I'm all for celebrations, hot dogs, hamburgers, a nice day off if that's what you get. And if you don't, I'm sorry. But, if, you know, a lot of us in here will be just kind of taking it easy on our Independence Day. But, but let's not forget, like I said earlier, our independence came with an incredible cost. I mean, men and women have died for the 200 plus years of our existence to preserve our independence. Yeah, we have a document that says we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but that came with a price. I grew up in the Northeast region, spent four years living uh, in Massachusetts, and so my mom took me every Saturday to some point on the Liberty Trail or, you know, the Freedom Trail, whatever it was called. I went to a lot of places uh, that uh, were historical in terms of the Revolutionary War. So I, uh, I went to the site of the Boston Massacre in 1770, uh, which kind of got the ball rolling between uh, the American colonies and the British tyrants that were taxing them. Uh, I heard about Crispus Attucks, who was the first African-American free man to die uh, for the sake of America's liberty. I went to Lexington, where the shot heard round the world. Remember that story? Anybody uh, Schoolhouse Rock? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's an actual place. And, uh, some brave, uh, somebody even said crazy colonials armed themselves uh, against a, a British force that was ten times their number. And uh, they were all about to leave until someone, no one knows, but someone took a shot. And that shot was what started the revolution that led to you and I having hamburgers and hot dogs on July 4th. And lots of people, men, women, children, gave their lives for, and, and it's, just, it's just the way it goes. Listen, if it's worth having, it costs something, and a lot of times it costs a great deal. So you're like, okay, this is church. We're going to get the Bible in here, aren't we? Yeah, let's go there now, shall we? The book of Acts is just basically a, a record, a history of the ups and downs of the early church. Early church starts uh, with an incredible high. Acts chapter 2, Peter and his friends come down out of the upper room. They start preaching in languages they don't even know. Uh, Men and women there in the streets of Jerusalem hear Peter's message, and 3,000 people in one day come to Christ. Early church, instant, boom, born, right? Good day. It's been a, if you read this story, it's a good first few chapters, following Acts chapter 2, but you get to Acts chapter 7 and things change as they are wont to do in a world marred by sin. Some of the staunch Jews in Jerusalem were getting kind of tired of these uppity Christian types. And they take one of them, a guy named Stephen, to task. And Stephen, uh, if you read that, just gives him a good tongue lashing. Uh, He doesn't back down, but his words lead to his death. He's the first martyr of the Christian church. And emboldened by that one act, uh, the rest of Jerusalem uprises and comes, up, comes against the church, and, and Christians are scattered everywhere. They, they leave Jerusalem in droves. Uh, persecution is now normal in the Christian faith. And, and you basically read for the rest of the story the ups and downs of those who early on followed Jesus. This guy's Saul, remember him? 
He came and persecuted the church. Uh, he was there holding the robes of those who were throwing rocks at this guy, Stephen, who was the first martyr. Uh, he, he, he starts a campaign. He just travels wherever these Christians who had left Jerusalem were going, and he just tries to do like an inquisition with them and pick them off one by one. But then, guess what? Even as uh, the uh, arrow is dipping down and things are looking so dire that we're going to lose, we're going to lose, guess what God decides to do? Well, he takes the champion of those who are against him, and he makes him the champion of his side. And Paul is born from Saul, the, uh, the murderer. Isn't that great? Do you appreciate the nature of God's grace and the nature of God's wins, even in the midst of a sin-marred world? It just happens over and over again. I could detail it. I mean, I'm not going to preach the whole book of Acts. We'd be here a while. But just, you read it. I challenge you this week. Read, read Acts again and just watch. The arrow go up, the arrow go down. Uh, it's just how it works. You get to uh, Acts 14, and Paul, who's become a Christian now, uh, he, he decides uh, there in his church in a place called Antioch that he's supposed to go with the gospel to the Gentiles. You and I are sitting here today because Paul and some of his friends responded to the call of the Holy Spirit, and the elders of that church in Antioch said, yeah, that's a good idea. And they took off in a boat, and they started sailing around the Mediterranean, planting churches with people who weren't Jewish. Now, some of you might be here from Jewish descent, but most of us aren't. And the gospel doesn't come to us except that the Holy Spirit, in the midst of intense persecution, inspires Paul to go and preach the gospel. And even in the early days of Paul's preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 14, it tells us he goes to this city, and there's incredible winds. He goes there, he's looking at a guy who's preaching the gospel, he looks at him, he can tell that he believes, and he says, hey man, he's a crippled guy, he says, hey man, because you believe, you're healed. And this crippled guy gets up and tells us in Acts 14, he starts walking around, and the whole city freaks out. Uh, they, they misinterpret Paul's powers as being from the Greek gods, and they think he's from Zeus. And they start worshiping him, like bringing sacrifices, cattle and other animals to sacrifice uh, for, for Paul, this embodiment of the Greek deities. And Paul and Bar they're like, hey, ho, 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 that's not, that's not our game. They try to preach the gospel, but they were revered as gods. And then one verse later, here in the city of Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, verse 19, here's what happens. Some Jews who were from their home city in Antioch in another place called Iconium, they, they, they came into Lystra. And they got together with the other Jews there and they persuaded the crowds. And then it's just this simple like one-off. And, and then they stoned Paul. They picked up cinder block-sized rocks and they threw them at Paul's head. And then after they were done throwing rocks at him, they dragged his carcass out of the city because they didn't want that rotten inside the gates. And they were supposed that he was dead. For all intents and purposes, he probably was. But then the disciples gathered around him. I wish that there was more here from Luke. Gathered around him and did what? I'm guessing prayed. Maybe some of them freaked. It's our leader. He's, he's, a, he's a bloody pulp. But whatever happened in that circle led to this. Paul rising up. And then don't miss this. This is one of those things if you're just reading fast in the Bible, you're like, eh, cool, he went into the city. No, Paul got up and he went back inside the city gates of the place where, I don't know how many people, but lots of people had wanted him dead and had thrown rocks at him to that effect. Okay, some of you are like, wow, that's crazy. No, that's Christian. The Christian life is ups and downs. But the the, the, the telltale of your faith, the, the, the proof of your faith is what you do in the downs. When God delivers you in the midst of what is your life's beating, do you run from him and say, that's enough? I mean, almost lost it there, God. I mean, thanks for the resuscitation, but I'm moving on. I'm going to go to the safe places. I'm going to hang out in my church until I'm done or until you come back. Or... In the midst of those lows, do we head back into town? Do we go back to where the, the beating came from and allow God to use us some more there? Uh, we're not sitting here except that brave men and women did that over and over again in the Christian faith. And, and we're not going to realize our vision as a church of being used to make disciples here and around the world except that we become overcomers in those times in our lives where the arrow goes down. Everything worth having in life costs us something. 
And this faith that you and I have, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian, it's the greatest prize of your life. It is worth you and I having. But don't be fooled. Every once in a while, sin's going to make a mess of this faith existence you and I have. It's going to come in. It's going to oppress us and depress us and suppress us and all the other press words. And it's going to be difficult. But it's in those trials, James tells us, that God teaches us perseverance. He builds us up in our spiritual muscles. He makes us stronger. It's in those trials that he wants to make much of his name. And we have a decision in those trials to either follow him or flake. And what my encouragement to you is on this Independence Day weekend is take a page from our forefathers. Take a page from our national forefathers and our spiritual forefathers. When the trouble comes, go back into town. And keep doing what God's called you to do. The story takes us today to Acts chapter 19. And we're just going to see these two themes, ups and downs, uh, displayed there. I'm going to read a bunch of verses. I'm going to stop and comment every once in a while. But in the end, here's my hope, that you walk out of here reminded, if you'd forgotten, that if you're in a time of peace and a time of rest and a time of up, downs are coming. Be ready and hang on to your Savior. Head back into town. If you are in the midst of a down and life is rocking you right now and you don't know if you want to get up, you certainly aren't sure you want to follow Jesus anymore, let me encourage you. God is our deliverer. Here's basically the nature of God. At the beginning, he was our creator, right? And, and, and then, as always, he, he was our friend, our, our God, our, our, our father, right? But even when sin comes in, he remains our father, but then he has to take on another role. You know what it is? Deliverer. He's our rescuer. Sin has required that he become so. And for the existence of mankind, that's the role that God has played for us. If you're in the middle of your down, trust that God will be your rescue. Let's look at Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And we're going to see this basically play out. Sometimes the Christ life is just victory after victory. You want to see what happened here in this little place called Ephesus? Anybody? Okay. For the three people that do, here it comes. And God was doing extraordinary. Everybody underline extraordinary if you have a paper Bible. This is very important that you understand this because what's going to follow is not normal. All miracles are, are above normal. Can we all agree that miracles by definition aren't normal? But these are not just everyday, which there aren't any everyday miracles, but these are extraordinary miracles. And you'll see why I emphasize that in just a second. Because they were coming by the hands of Paul. He was healing and doing all kinds of things, but not even, not even in his presence were these things occurring. Things were happening with him not even being there. It was even to the point that his handkerchiefs or aprons, that his touches skins, were, they, they were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. There was all kinds of miraculous spiritual healing going on even in the presence of things that Paul sweated on. If you don't remember, Paul was a tent maker. He wasn't a full-time pastor. Uh, he would actually go and, and ply his trade in the mornings and then in the evenings and then in the afternoons. If you are here last week, we talked about the fact that he was teaching in this hall of a guy named Tyrannus, and that's where the gospel got spread over two years to the whole of Asia. But on the bookends of his preaching time every day, he would make tents, and that was a sweaty job there uh, in this place called Ephesus. It was hot, and so he would... Uh, put a do-rag on, a handkerchief around his head, and he would sweat into his handkerchief, and then he would wear this apron to protect his other clothing from all the sewing and needles and all that stuff that he would use to build a tent. Well, people got their hands on his old clothes, and apparently uh, those relics were taken to other people who uh, had faith in God and, and, the, and the God of Paul, and those relics were present at the time of their healing. Now, here's where I, I say it that way, because I want you to understand, if you grew up in churches that said that certain tikis or certain pieces of wood or certain um, vials of water from the River Jordan, I've heard that one before, that they have some superpower to them, everybody look at me, they don't. Okay, we don't believe in inanimate objects having power. Even as the Bible talks about this, you're like, well, yeah, but what about Paul's handkerchief and his apron? They were a handkerchief and an apron. The Holy Spirit and the will of God is what healed, healed those people by their faith. Are you with me? So if you ever watch late night television and there's an evangelist who offers you one of the hankies that he's preached with for $100 of your money towards his ministry, just turn the channel, okay? It's not, there's no power in that. 
The power is God's. It's, it's his to choose how he wields. And then these extraordinary, not normal, not for today miracles, uh, he used a handkerchief and an apron to accomplish these things. Uh, let's keep reading. So people are getting healed left and right. And, and now we're going to see another uh, element of the spiritual life uh, kind of brought to fore here in, in Ephesus. It says that there was an, uh, some itinerant Jewish exorcists. You know a couple of those, don't you? You know, guys who on the side just are Jewish and they exercise demons. Everybody knows a couple of those, right? Okay, well, they had a bunch of those back in these days. There were some itinerant Jewish exorcists that undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they said, I adjure you. They went up to this one demonic, uh, 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 demonically um, possessed, wow, English again, um, demonically possessed guy says, hey, we're going to cast this demon out of you. And we've seen Paul do it this way, so we're going to try it. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims come out of this man. Uh, these, uh, it says in verse 14, these were the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva who were doing this. Now, if you look back through the, uh, the, the, the stories of the high priest families, there's no Sceva who was a high priest family. He was probably a relative of somebody who was a high priest, and he was totally playing on that guy's name. You ever met somebody who says, well, my cousin's, you know, Troy Aikman, or, uh, you know, whatever, and, and whatever. They're just playing off of somebody's name. That's what Sceva was doing. And these seven, he had seven sons, but all of them were in the exorcism business. And they would walk around in this hyper-spiritual place called Ephesus. Ephesus was uh, the center of Artemis worship. Uh, the Roman god was Diana. Uh, she was the goddess of fertility and uh, the goddess of the hunt. And so uh, here in this, this epicenter of her belief, uh, there was all kinds of occultic practices, all kinds of spiritual um, you know, sightings and seeings. Uh, the, the, the activity of the demonic was, was rampant in Ephesus. And so that's why seven guys could ply their trade exercising demons. Uh, they tried to use Jesus' name in this, and we're going to see what happens in just a second. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. But this is a great place for me to kind of push pause in this sermon and talk about the spiritual war that we're all in. Now, if you aren't aware of this, if you're kind of new to the Christian faith, we believe in a spiritual God who spiritually saves us from our sins. And that spiritual God, uh, because he's allowed it, has, has, has basically involved us in this spiritual war between his adversary, a guy named Satan, and his followers that we call demons, and us, uh, and God, and his followers that we call angels. It's a spiritual existence that we live in. Like, there's unseen things happening, even as I preach this right now. Uh, there's a war going on. We're actually uh, doing a class on it this summer called Spiritual Warfare, and in it, this book that the, a guy named Chip Ingram wrote, Chip Ingram wrote, called The Spiritual War, uh, he says, that, or The Invisible War, he says this, there's an invisible world, there is an invisible war that we're in, okay, uh, our foe is formidable. The book makes very clear that Satan's not someone to just be flippantly dismissed. And then maybe you grew up in a tradition that doesn't talk about spiritual warfare, and therefore, by de facto, uh, ipso de facto, you are just dismissive of the spiritual realm. Uh, you shouldn't do that, okay? Our foe is formidable. Uh, it tells us in, in the writings of Peter that he is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He, he wants to crush all that God wants for good. So who our adversary is. So we've got to understand that he's formidable, um, that we should respect him, but not fear him. Some of you grew up in churches where the Holy Spirit and the spiritual realm was talked about every Sunday, and you'd walk out of church kind of like this, because you were sure there was a demon behind that car, and there was going to be one that jumped out of that bush, and everything that went wrong, you could blame on a demon or blame, you know, okay, we could take this thing too far, Right? We can get too consumed with our potential fear of our adversary. He can become a foe that um, is too ferocious. Now, we should respect him, understand him, pray against him, but we should never fear him. It says in Paul's writings to Timothy, who was the pastor at this church uh, called Ephesus, he says, hey, man, we haven't been given a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of love and of power and of self-discipline. So suffer for the gospel, he says to Timothy. Fan into flame. Uh, the spirit that has been placed in you. Be strong in the face of your adversary. Don't be frightened. And that's where we get the last thing that we need to understand about spiritual warfare. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Th this is the truth about this spiritual war. It's already decided. God has won. You and I are victors in Christ in this spiritual battle that wages around us. So no matter how bad things get, 
how dire things get, we are all conquerors because of Christ. All right, original sermon back on. So these seven sons of Sceva are trying to cast out this demon in the name of Jesus. And so the demon has a conversation with them. Look what it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 15. It says, the evil spirit answers them. Jesus I know. Paul, I've heard of, I recognize him. But who are you guys? This is so great. Because if you read the book of, of James, again, it says that the, the demons uh, know who God is and they shudder. They, they, they understand who God is. They respect him. They, they understand scripture. They understand everything about God. And they're chicken. Okay? So this demon, uh, he knows that when Jesus' name comes into this deal, even if it's spoken by Paul or someone else who follows Jesus, he's got to pay attention. Jesus is the victor. He's the authority. Jesus, I know. Paul, one of his, his ambassadors, I'm familiar with him. <laughs> but yo, Sceva. Never heard of you. And Luke takes this story and he puts it in the scripture. There's no Christians around. Uh, the sons of Sceva, not Christian. We're assuming this demon-possessed guy, not Christian. But it makes the book. And here's my favorite part of the story. The man in whom was the uh, evil spirit uh, was existing, uh, he leaped on them. He mastered all of them. One against seven. I mean, it's like, you know, Jackie Chan uh, to the max. I mean, he just goes off on these sons of Sceva. Jackie Chan's, anyway, okay. Uh, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, stop right there. If you start a fight wearing pants and you end it not wearing pants, you lost. Can we all agree? That's how you know who wins in a fight. If you're no longer robed and you started robed, you lost. This guy takes it to the sons of Sceva. They run Buck naked around the streets of Ephesus. Everybody notices, and look what happens. It became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, that this has happened. And fear, fear not like <gasps> we're frightened, terrified of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but fear, awe. You know, Paul's handkerchief and apron heal people. The name of Jesus, when invoked in, in, in demonic situations, uh, brings about a whooping where seven guys lose to one. This awe came about them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It says that also many uh, of those who were uh, originally believers came and they confessed and divulged their evil practices or their practices. Um, this needs to happen in the church on a more regular basis. A lot of us get used to following Jesus, but it's not until we understand the greatness of Christ and, and the power of Christ that we really start dealing with the stuff that's in us. These were believers who came. And they divulged their, their practices. A number of those uh, who had practiced magic arts before they met Christ, they were in the temple of Artemis. Uh, they brought their books uh, together and they burned them in the sight of, of everybody there. And, th and then all that uh, counted the value of them, they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was basically a day's wage. So do the math, that's a lot of money. But people were willing to sacrifice. They didn't go on eBay and sell this stuff. They brought it all. They burn it all because they recognize that this is dangerous to anybody whose hands it's in. It's not something I want to have. It's not something I want anybody else to have. And Jesus, it says there, was extolled in the hearts. He was lifted up in the hearts of the, of the Ephesians. Sometimes with Jesus, it's just victory after victory. I mean, he's using laundry to heal people, right? He's using <laughs> exorcists and the exercised to illustrate his power. I mean, isn't that just like Jesus, to take something that he, nobody from his camp was involved with, and, and he wasn't necessarily a parent there, but he uses it to hammer home the story in the minds of the Ephesians, and many people trusted Christ. I love hearing those stories. I was in India this past uh, couple weeks, and, and I was sitting in a, one of the pastor's trainings that we did, and, and, and the leader of the group said, we, we need to hear from Pastor Ramesh. They'd get up and give testimonies, and those were some of my favorite things in the whole thing. Because uh, these pastors from India would get up and say how they became pastors. This one guy uh, grew up Hindu his whole life. And his wife, uh, ladies, some of you, uh, you're here without your husbands. Let me encourage you with the story of Pastor Ramesh, okay? His wife started going to the Christian church in their town. Uh, she invited the pastor over at a time where she thought Ramesh, her husband, would be at work. Well, he got the day off that day. And he came home while this guy was praying in his house with his wife to a Christian god. Uh, Hindu Ramesh lost it, sent his wife to another room to be dealt with later, 
uh, but didn't just throw this guy out, beat him up uh, physically, which is common, uh, unfortunately, in lots of parts of the world. If you're a Christian, you're going to take it on the chin. And he f- physically beat and intimidated this pastor, told him, if I ever see you again, you're dead. Went in and dealt with his wife in ways that he's not uh, proud of, and then went on in life. I don't know how long the time went by. The story was kind of unclear in that regard, but uh, he became ill. Ill to the point that every time he went to the Hindu gods that were supposed to heal him, uh, nothing was happening. He went to the doctors and nothing was happening. He was desperate. And his wife kept telling him, I'm praying to Jesus for you. And after, you know, disparaging that for years or, you know, for as long as she's been doing it, uh, he finally says, well, maybe there's something to this. And so he goes unannounced to the pastor's house. Can you imagine that guy opening the door and seeing Ramesh on the other side? I mean, he, he's trying to shut the door and Ramesh is putting his foot in there and he says, no, 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 I'm not here. I'm not here to beat you. I'm not here to, I'm not angry. I need your help. And then the story of this young Indian pastor, the prayers of this other Indian pastor resulted in Ramesh being healed from whatever the illness was that he had. And Ramesh became a Christian, and he mentored under this pastor, and now he's planting a church in his region and seeing God use him in glorious ways. Now, isn't that great? That's great stuff. But here's why it's great. It started out that Jesus was losing. The pastor got a beat down. But the story wasn't over. And on the way to this great victory, Jesus did some incredible things. Sometimes life with Christ is just victory after victory, but like we said earlier, sometimes um, it's just hard going. Uh, I went uh, whitewater rafting with our family a couple years ago up in North Georgia. And, uh, there were parts of the whitewater rafting experience that were just glorious. We're out under the, you know, the, the bright sun of North Georgia, and it's beautiful. And the water's kind of you know, going, but it's not going so fast that you even have to really paddle. You're just kind of sitting there. But then the rapids come. Anybody been in that situation? And we went through a couple rapids, you know, threes, twos and threes. They weren't that bad. But the last one was a four that on this particular day, because it had been raining, was a five. And they basically took a five was really bad, death. And, and so they basically said to everybody in their boats, you don't have to go over this one. You can pull over to the side and, and you know, walk your raft down past it. It's called lunch counter. <laughs> and it's called lunch counter because you basically fall off it like a lunch counter. It's like an eight-foot waterfall that you just go straight down. That's what they should call it. It's not a rapid. It's a waterfall. And so they, I, remember, I remember they said, we're going to have some of our more experienced rafters go over it first, so you've got to see where you want to hit the rapid and all that stuff. Well, here come these experienced rafters, and they hit the, the, the tip of lunch counter, and their they're raft flips, and they're gone. I mean, you know, eventually their heads bob out as they spit out the river, you know, uh, but then the leader's like, well, that didn't go so well. Anybody else want to try? <laughs> and so the Saunders did, <laughs> and we survived. But it was terrifying the whole time. I was sitting in the back watching my family and just praying, God, get us over the lunch counter. Please, Lord. It's our vacation. We'd like to have another day. (laughs) And that's how it is in the Christ life. Periods of calm and tranquility and then lunch counter. Here comes the lunch counter in Ephesus. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This is Luke being pithy. He's basically saying uh, it hit the fan. He says, uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, this goddess that was worshipped in Ephesus, uh, she brought no little business uh, to the craftsmen. Uh, this, this was their way of life. And uh, it was being greatly affected. People were burning their books and their idols. They, they, weren't, they weren't coming back to the store for more. Uh, their boutiques were shutting down and their craft was being erased. So uh, he gathered together uh, those who were silversmiths and workmen in similar, similar trades, and he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He, he appeals to their wallets. Good play amongst men, right? We'll respond to the economy thing. And then he says, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That's actually almost a quote from what Paul said in, in, in a place called Athens when he was preaching to people who had, uh, you know, had lots of gods around them there in that capital of Greece. And there's one called the unknown God. And he says, I know who the unknown God is. It's Jesus. And I want you to understand that God, this, this, this Jesus, doesn't live in temples built by men's hands. He, he basically discredited the entire idolatry business. 
And uh, this guy Demetrius references that, that uh, teaching of Paul's. It goes on and it says, uh, and there is danger of not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, meaning go away, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius amps it up. says, hey, this isn't just about you having some lunch money. This is about our entire way of life, the culture that we've grown up in, that, that we've, you know, this goddess that we've worshipped all of our lives. She could go away and everything that we know, everything that makes us Ephesian, it could be going away with it. Well, this was enough to incite this crowd of tradesmen. This is what happened. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They started their chant. What do we want? Artemis. When do we want her? Now, right? And they walk out of that meeting. They walk into a street that was probably filled at this time. Uh, scholars believe that there was a, a festival in honor of Artemis going on. Lots of people who worshipped Artemis were there. And so it was easy to kind of drum up a mob, and that's what happened. The city was filled with confusion, it says, and they rushed together into this theater, theater that sat about 24,000 people even back in those days. Uh, and they drug with them these guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, they were Macedonian Christians, Gentiles, but who, uh, people who were hanging out with Paul and had trusted Christ uh, and were companions in their trials or in their travels. And so the question I want to answer with the time I have left briefly is what do we do when trouble arrives? And there's, there's basically one thing that we need to do. We need to look for God's provision in the midst of inevitable opposition. That, that's, he's a deliverer. He's our creator, he's our father, and he's our deliverer. When opposition comes, when the mobs come to our door, whatever the mob is in your life, joblessness, you trust in Jesus, relational woes, marriage falling apart, your first stop is not Dr. Phil, it's Jesus. Psalmist, David, a guy who went through some ups and downs, wrote this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, and we come up on the lunch counter, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What did he say? God's got us. He's present in our times of trouble. We don't fear. We trust. We paddle. We move forward in faith. David had some ups and downs, right? Comes out of anonymity and he's anointed the next crown prince. Goes to deliver lunch to his brothers at a battlefield and, and slays the giant. They write songs about him. The top 40 in Israel was all about David and how he killed his 10,000s. But then the king, who was still in control, was left by God to his sinful thoughts and sinful desires and, and he starts throwing his spear at David. <laughs> like over and over again. He's a horrible shot. There's one time he missed him three straight shots in a row as David's playing his harp. But then he starts chasing him around the countryside of Israel. And if you read 1 Samuel, you just see that David's just ducking in and out of everywhere. He even goes to, into Philistine territories, grows his beard out really big, starts drooling on it like a crazy man just so he can survive the day in enemy territory because it's not safe for him to live in his promised land. He had to live in a cave Anybody? David did. Over and over again, running for his life. Those are some downs. But in the midst of his downs, what's David right? God's our very present help in times of trouble. And if you read the story of David, God delivers him to what he always had promised to him, the throne of Israel. So here we are. There's opposition in Ephesus. What does it mean to look for God's provision in the midst of this opposition? Just two things, and I'll let you go home. First, look for direction uh, from un, <laughs> unexpected sources. Uh, just like the sons of Sceva were used by God to, to bring the gospel to a head in Ephesus, not something we would expect him to use. Maybe a great sermon by Paul, but certainly not an exorcism and some naked dudes running around the street, right? No, God, God does incredible things in unexpected ways. You've got to be looking for it. Look what happens here. Paul's about to get involved. When Paul wished to go in amongst the crowd, he wanted to go into this crowd of how many thousands? I don't know. Uh, but they were all ready to lynch Gaius and Aristarchus. 
And Paul wants to go in there and, and like he did, you know, just argue with them, explain to them. Here, here's why these guys are doing this, and here's why Christ is, a, you know, he wanted to preach. And his disciples were like, Paul, seriously, I mean, I know you've been stoned before and you went back into town, but this is getting out of hand. You can't go in there right now. You know, the mission of God will be stopped. And Paul, as he was used to, you know, I think he was kind of headstrong, read his writings. Uh, He was like, I'm still going. But then the next verse, Luke tells us that even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. We can assume that it's at the plea of these Asiarchs that Paul says, all right, I won't go in. Who are the Asiarchs? You've read about them before in Scripture, right? No, you haven't. It's the only place they exist. An Asiarch is basically a city councilman of Ephesus. He is a, a political figure of Asia. Uh, uh, Paul, in his two years there in Ephesus, has apparently met some of these guys, gone to, I don't know, Rotary Club, I don't know, met them, and he's hung out with them to the point that they have a friendship, and so uh, these Asiarchs, which we have no idea how they found, I mean, everybody knew the mob was going, but how they found out that Paul was trying to go, we don't even know the story, but they got word that Paul was going to go in there, into this angry mob, and and, and they, they took the time to say, hey, no, you should not do that, and that's what God used to keep Paul from what would have been probably an explosive situation, right? Can you think about the times in your life that God's done something seemingly insignificant like that and has shaped your world as a result? I went to a Christmas party as a, a teaching pastor at a church in Dallas that I served at, uh, and I, I was, uh, it's a long story, but I had I'd been told uh, that I was going to be the next church plant pastor of this church, and at this Christmas party that we were celebrating, uh, it came to light in a very public way that that was not going to happen. Uh, the church was going to build another campus, another building, and so we weren't going to be investing in what I thought was going to be the vision for my life for the next 10 years, and, and, and that's how I found out the news. That night I went home. I'm not going to lie to you. I wasn't in a great spirit of joy and peace and comfort, and I said, well, if they don't want me, someone probably does, and I went online, and I went online to this website that's basically uh, monster.com for pastors, and I found this church in Florida called Bay Life. No. Yeah. No, listen, this isn't a holy moment in your pastor's life. This is, it was the first listing because it was a B. Okay, I saw the building. I, saw, I thought, that's a cool-looking building. I like palm trees. And there was a little place in there where you could, I mean, I, I hadn't been on this site before. I'd never applied for a job before. They'd always, God had always found where I was supposed to work without me having to apply for a job. I didn't have, an, I didn't have a resume. I'd never had a resume. Just hadn't needed one. And so I went online to this website, and I saw Bay Life Church, and I, I read their tagline, and they talked about being, you know, dressed down and relaxed and authentic and all this stuff. And I didn't know anything about the church or what was going on in the church's history at the time. If you were around back in those days, you know what was going on in the history of the church, or the history of the church at the time. I just saw this really cool-looking building in a sunny place, and I was like, well, that's for me. And I got onto that little, that little blurb space, and I said, I don't know if it would ever work out, but your church looks cool, and if I could ever be a part of it, that'd be awesome. Sign Mark. That was my application letter. Maggie's here. She could tell you, right? Something like that, right? Well, I didn't know that Bay Life Church had just started their search for their next pastor. I believe I was one of the first ones to actually respond to the ad and that I, I, through lots of God's directing, became a person of interest to be your pastor. I wasn't looking for a job. I was mad about the one that I was at. And six months later, I stood on this stage, and I preached, and you guys said yes, and I've been here for 13 years. All right, I know, I'm, I'm glad you're happy. You're not clapping, that's conspicuous. But I tell you that to tell you this, that, listen, if you went back and did the history of you, there will be times like that where unexpected things happen, stuff that you're like, I don't know what this is, but it determined who you're sitting next to that's your spouse. It determined that you're sitting in this room with me today and listening to the sermon. It, 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 God does that all the time. He's this unseen deliverer. We don't even know he's doing it, but he's doing it. Luke said, I got to put this Asiarch stuff in here. It's too good. Because Paul would have come in there and we wouldn't have the rest of the book of Acts if that crowd got their hands on the leader of this, this movement. But God chose to deliver him that way. Look for unexpected, unexpected sources. But then lastly, look for the deliverance that only God can give. You got to hear this and then I'll let you go. Here's how they get out of this situation. Gaius and Aristarchus are, are, are saved 
by the most unlikely of saviors. So, so let's, see, let's see how they start first. So you skip down to verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, uh, for the assembly was in complete confusion and most of them didn't even know why they were there together. That's how mobs work. We're mad about something, let's do this, right? And so uh, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Uh, they said, Alexander, he was a Jewish guy, get up there and try to stop this, this is getting out of hand. And uh, so Alexander gets up there and he motions with his hand. He's trying to get people to stop yelling. He wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but then he recognized that he was a Jew who they had lumped in. Paul was a Jew. The Jews must be Christian. They're all Christians. They're all Christian Jews. And so the, he just saw, the crowd saw that uh, this guy, Alexander, was just part of the problem. And so they just yelled him down. And the guy, you know, who, who f- had first dibs on trying to quell this, this, this whole disturbance, uh, he, he, they basically, st- they take two hours. Just think about this. Can you, do, can you say one phrase for two hours? Go home and try Honey, that was a great dinner. Honey, that was a great dinner. I mean, for two hours? You just, you, I mean, it's like Chinese water torture after a while. You just, you just lose your mind. But for two hours, these guys, you know, probably, uh, you know, with, with the aid of some liquid courage and stuff like that. But they just, they yelled for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They wouldn't even let Alexander speak. So how is this going to end? Well, here's how it ends. Seeing then that these things cannot be, oh, okay, sorry, I skipped the verse. When the town clerk, okay, so, <laughs> I love this. God is so cool. The town clerk, not the mayor, not one of the councilmen, not one of the Asiarchs, the town clerk. I'm picturing the, you know, the bean counter with the glasses. He walks up to the podium, you know, uh, un assuming, un, whatever, but, but for whatever reason, he's going to throw it in. He's going he's gonna to get involved in this. And the town clerk gets up, and he somehow quiets the crowd. People who have been, maybe their voices were hurting after two hours, but they were, finally everybody took a break. I mean, he wasn't a Jew. Maybe he's got something to say. Maybe he's going to tell us how we should kill Gaius and Aristarchus. Maybe he's going to be a part of the party. But he gets up and he says this, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Just so you know, in the history of the worship of Artemis, a meteor, uh, this is how they believe it got started, a meteor fell and it had all these bumps on it and all these, you know, undistinguishing uh, Greeks, they looked at it and said, this is from the gods and this is, uh, you know, a, a, a statue of sorts of this Artemis that we're supposed to worship. And so if you, if you look through, go on uh, Wikipedia, you can look through and you can see these tikis that have all these bumps on them that are supposed to signify, you know, pregnancies. She's the goddess of fertility. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's basically just a replica of this meteor, this bumpy rock that fell from the sky and they mistook uh, for, you know, this goddess Artemis. So he gets up there and he just gives them a brief history of their religion. Ephesus is the place where this got started. Seeing that these things, uh, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, quiet down and quit doing all this rash stuff. What's he saying? Hey, we're in the, we're in the cat seat. We're, we're, we're in the front, uh, front row of this thing. We, we, we got dibs on religion in our culture. We're the seat of Artemis worship. What's all the fuss about? He goes on and he addresses those who started the riot. He says, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious. These two guys were just walking along the street. They were identified with Paul and they're like, let's kill them. Uh, they're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. They, they, hadn't, they hadn't done anything specifically. He goes on and he says this, if, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have complaint against anyone, the courts are open. Go find you some Judge Judy and figure this out. Settle it in the courts. There are pro-counsels. There's, there's legal routes for you to take. Let them bring charges against one another. If, you, if that's what you feel like you got to do, go do it. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the government, in the regular assembly. And then he finishes with this, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. See, there was a bigger power if, uh, you know, in play here in Ephesus. This was a Roman territory. And if you remember the story of Jesus during Jesus' time, what was the big uh, you know, accusation that the, the, the Pharisees had against Jesus? He was upsetting uh, and bringing you know, trouble to the, to the culture there in the Jewish faith. And the Romans were fine with your faith. You believe whatever you want. Just don't make a fuss. Don't make us come in here and have to straighten things out because if you do, it's going to be bad. And so that was one of the main accusations that was levied against Jesus. He's a blasphemer of the Jewish God and as such, he's creating a disturbance. He's got to be dealt with. 
And so here comes the town clerk. He adjusts his horn rims, horn rims and he says, hey, guys, we're about to be you know, brought down by the garrison of Roman soldiers that are here in Ephesus. Uh, if, if they come and want to know what the fuss is about and we show them Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, it's not going to bode well for anybody in here. He says, uh, we're about to be charged with riot today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And here's how it ends. You ready? And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, that was a good mob, guys. See you tomorrow. And everybody went home. That was it. Talk about anticlimactic. I mean, if I'm, you know, the Holy Spirit, I'm zapping a couple guys. You know, I'm, I'm turning some dudes into stone or something. Oh, you want to worship an idol? Worship Frank. He's a stone now. Right? That's how I'd roll. I'd, I'd, I'd make the, the most of this opportunity to do something extraordinary miraculous. Extraordinarily miraculous. But what does, what does God use? Gene, the town clerk. And he just comes in and he's like, he's not even named in scripture. He's just this town clerk and he comes in and he quells this incredible riot that had the potential. Don't miss this. This is why Luke puts it in there. It had the potential to end the work of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus, which by the way is the most talked about church in the entire New Testament. You got what's here in Acts, you got the book of Ephesians, you got the two Timothys because Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus, and you got the three letters from John because John was one of the elders at Ephesus. You even go to Revelation, and Ephesus is one of the seven churches that Jesus sends a letter to in the book of Revelation. I mean, Ephesus is a huge player in the Christian story, and on this particular day, it was under threat. And how does God get him out? How does he deliver? Town clerk. I believe that God is always at the ready to deliver us. Sometimes we demand, you know, this miraculous, extravagant deliverance, and he's like, no, I just, I just want to send Gene. I just want you to get, because we want, you know, what we want plus. But God wants what he wants, knowing that it's best, right? So now, may you and I understand that everything we're having in life, especially in this Christian life, is going to cost us. There's going to be a cost involved. It's a sin-marred world. It's just not going to be easy. But here's the good news. Uh, even as, as that's true, God gives us victory after victory. As you go home today, maybe you want to just take time and, and each one of you and your family list five incredible things that God has done for you and your family. You can start with a general. You know, we got a house. That's a good one. Don't, don't flip out on that. Lots of people in the world don't have one. I went to the slums of Mumbai and there's people living in junk. Okay? So if you got a house, be grateful. It's a miracle from God that he's provided for you on your behalf. But talk about those victories that God gives you. But then move quickly to the things that have been hard in your life. And remember, as Luke does here in the story of Ephesus, remember the ways that God delivered you in those things. The ways that he appointed his direction. The people that he used to be your savior in your times of need. God's a deliverer. And may you and I rest in his deliverance this day and always. Amen? God, thanks so much for your word and a chance to open it. I pray that it is an encouragement to us, and that we would see your hand in our lives as you deliver us over and over again. Uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.